Well, I get to kick us off into the book of Esther. Jody set us up last week with an introduction uh, into uh, both the study as well as the book of Esther. But today we're gonna be looking at chapters one and and two. And I'm excited for what the Lord has for us. But before we even dive into those chapters, into the story of Esther, I'd love to do one thing. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I come into a room like this and, there's just a thousand things that are on my mind, things that are just weighing on my heart. And so while I may be physically present here, I'm actually not present. And I wonder if any of you can relate to that even this morning. And so what I'd love for us to do is to just take a moment and in the quietness of our hearts, just between you and the Lord, to ask the Lord to help you be attentive to his spirit this morning. I believe God speaks through his word. And I think he has something to say both to you and to me this morning. If only we would have ears to hear. And so if I could offer you a prayer, I'd simply offer you this. Just pray, God, help me to be attentive to your spirit. I'll give you a moment to pray that. And now if you would, if you would also pray for me that I might be helpful to you. I'll give you a moment to pray that and then I'll pray for us. Well, Father, we come before you this morning and we declare our great need of you. Even more than we realize, God, we need you. And so I pray in these next few minutes that we have together that you would help us to be attentive to your spirit and your presence. Lord, whatever it is that you have to say to us this morning, would you give us ears to hear and then help us to follow you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I thought I'd begin this morning by sharing a little bit of my own story. Now for some of you, you're familiar with this, and so just go with me for a few minutes. For others of you, it's new. But I was born and raised in the New York, New Jersey area. Basically lived there my entire life until I moved here to Dallas five years ago uh, for seminary. And prior to going to seminary, I worked in corporate finance for 15 years. And I really loved my job. I think I was kind of good at my job. And I was doing fairly well in my career. But I knew that the Lord was calling me to take a next step in my journey with him by going to seminary and becoming a full-time seminary student and going into ministry. The only problem was I didn't want to do it. I wanted nothing to do with it. It just felt crazy. It felt risky. It felt foolish to, to quit your job, to move halfway across the country, leaving behind my family and friends, everything I know to become a full-time seminary student. I didn't even know what I was going to do with it afterwards. But I came to this point where I realized that if I believe God is who he says he is, then it's not crazy, it's not foolish to trust him and to follow him. It's actually the wisest thing, the smartest thing I could do is to say yes to Jesus and to to take a risk on him. That's so worth it. And then I also realized that there's gonna be this day that I stand before God. And what would I say? 
I, God, I didn't, I didn't obey you. I didn't follow you. I didn't trust you because I wanted to live a comfortable life somewhere in the corner of New Jersey. I don't think you could say that to the God of the universe. That just doesn't really sound good. And so at the end of 2014, December 2014, I quit my job. I packed up all my personal possessions into my car. I drove across the country to Dallas leaving behind my family, my friends, everything I know, and I became a 40-year-old unemployed student. Now that sounds like a really bad movie, and some days it felt like it was. See, I just didn't know what was gonna happen. And, and after uh, my first year in seminary, the program that I was in, during your second year, you needed to do an internship in order to graduate as part of your requirements. And I'm a planner, and so as soon as I got to seminary, within the first three months, I was on it. And I did my research, I did my fact-finding, and I figured out the perfect church that I wanted to intern at. I mean, this was the place for me. And then during my first semester, uh, in one of my classes, I had a professor who guest lectured. And many of you know her, Sue Edwards. Sue was a women's pastor here many years ago. And I ended up having coffee with Sue a few times. And every time we would meet, she would ask me, where are you gonna do your internship? What are you thinking? And I told her every single time, hey, listen, I got the whole thing figured out. I got this down. I know exactly where I'm going. This is the perfect place for me. And she would smile and she would say, I think you should check out Irving Bible Church. Irving Bible Church was nowhere on my radar. I had this thing figured out. I don't need Irving Bible Church. And, I, and she just was insistent. She would tell me all about this church, how much I would love the people here, the women's ministry. And if you know anything about Sue, she's just persistent. She does not let up. And finally, to, to appease her, I said, fine, I'll, I'll go check it out. And so one night, I ended up showing up here for Bible study. And I was immediately attracted to what I saw here. I'd never seen diversity and ethnicity and age in so many different ways at a women's ministry, let alone at a church in Dallas. I was just immediately attracted to what was going, here, going on here. And so I ended up talking to Jody, and I'll let her tell you her version of that first meeting. All I can tell you is I thought, I really like her. I think I can, I can learn some things here. I met with, and Jody was the women's pastor then, so I met with the rest of the team. I met with Tiffany and Amy, and I just really liked them. I really liked what the women's ministry team was doing here. And I guess they kind of liked me, because I ended up coming on as their women's ministry intern. And then during that first year of, of uh, that, that first and second year of, of seminary, while I was uh, interning here, I would lay awake at 2 or 3 a.m., and I would, I would just wonder, what in the world have I done? Have I just made the biggest mistake of my life? Like, this is crazy. Who does this kind of stuff? I mean, maybe you could do this when you're 20. You don't do this when you're 40. What was I thinking? Graduation was quickly approaching, and I had a few prospects for a job in ministry, but every time I would interview, it just wasn't the right fit for me. And so I figured... Well, I've done everything I could. I have been faithful to the Lord. I've trusted you. I've obeyed you. I've followed you. Now it's time. I guess it just didn't work out. Now it's time for me to get back to the real world. I'm going to just head back to New Jersey and get back to my life. Go back to corporate finance. The only problem was God had other ideas. 
And a few weeks later, maybe about a month later, I met with Brian Eck, who's our executive pastor, and Brian asked me to consider a position here. Now what you need to understand is there are no open positions here at IBC. And so they created a position for me to do what I was most passionate about, which is discipleship. And I ended up coming on staff full-time here in May 2017 and joining our discipleship team. Now, that's a story with a happy ending, because I'm still here. (laughs) But those two years in seminary were filled, filled with ordinary days. I would go to class, I would listen to lectures and read and study, write papers and take exams, and it was just super ordinary. Don't get me wrong, I loved my time in seminary. I just didn't see how God was at work in my life, what he was doing. It felt like God had asked me to take this leap off a cliff and I was in this slow motion free fall to the ground. And I began to wonder, where are you God? Don't you see me? Why won't you move? Why won't you act? I think we've all asked questions like that, haven't we? Maybe you're asking them this morning, where are you, God? Don't you see me? Why won't you move? Why won't you act? This morning, I wanna take a look at the beginning of the story of Esther, and here's what I wanna show you. God is always at work, and his greatest work is the work he's doing in us. God is always at work, and his greatest work is the work he's doing in us. And so what I wanna do is to walk through the beginning of this narrative together and to share with you two observations, and then I'm just gonna offer you some questions to to help you reflect upon your own lives with. See where we're going? All right, let's go. uh, Let me kind of recap the story for us. You've read through it, but here's here's where we are. The story begins with King Xerxes, and, and he's the king of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire is massive. It spans from modern day Pakistan in the east to modern day Turkey in the west. And Xerxes is powerful, rash, and he's ridiculously wealthy. What Xerxes wants, Xerxes gets. And he has a party, a party for his nobles and officials. And this isn't just any kind of ordinary party. This is a six-month rager. Now, now I'm Indian, and I'll tell you something. We know how to party. Like, we don't just do, like, these one-day deals. Like, you go to an Indian wedding, we do a whole week. We know how to party. But we got nothing on Xerxes. Xerxes has a party to end all parties, and it lasts six months because that's how long it takes him to show off all his power and wealth. Xerxes gets drunk, and he brags about how beautiful his queen is, and he he calls her to come and to wear her royal crown, and he wants to show her off in front of a thousand drunken men like she's a piece of property, and she refuses to come. Now, this is an incredible act of courage because in this culture, in a culture like this, an honor-shame culture where men held all the power and women were considered to be nothing, for the king's authority to be dismissed in this way, for Vashti not to come when the king commanded, was an outrage. And so Xerxes calls his inner circle, his cabinet together, and they decide that Vashti should be stripped of her crown and banished and that they needed to find a new queen. And so a search is made throughout the entire empire for the most beautiful women in the land. Now listen to me, this is not a beauty pageant. These women were taken. They are trafficked women taken against their own will for the pleasure 
of the king. This is a brutal act of power. Xerxes treated people as if they existed only for his personal pleasure. And every one of these women undergoes a, a year of beauty treatments, a year of training for this one night with the king. And when they went in, one of four things would happen to them, depending on how well they pleased the king. Now, first of all, he might like them, he, he might not like them, and so he would send them away, and they would become one of his concubines, and he would never call them again. And as concubines, they were destined uh, to, to basically live as, as, as widows. They, they couldn't go back to their families, they couldn't get married. They were to live in isolation as widows. The second thing that could happen is he could decide that he, he disliked them, and they could become his concubines, and he might call them every once in a while. The third thing that could happen is he might choose them to be his wives and to bear children for, for him, and, and their children would become heirs to the throne. And fourthly, he might favor them so much that one of them might become queen. These are the options before these women, and none of them are really options because they don't have a choice. Now, one of the women who was taken was a Jewish orphan girl named Esther who, who has been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai had forbidden Esther to reveal her ethnicity, to reveal that she was a Jew. And so Esther goes through all these beauty treatments and she goes in for her one night with the king. And don't romanticize that at all because that's not what happened. And the king is so pleased with her that he makes her queen. And once again, he throws this huge party, this lavish celebration of his marriage. The Jewish orphan girl now becomes queen of the greatest empire that exists at the time. This is where we find ourselves in the story of Esther. So here's the first observation. God is powerfully present, even when it appears he's elusively absent. God is powerfully present even when it appears he's elusively absent. Jody mentioned last week that God is the unseen character of this story. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther, no reference to prayer or scripture or, or anything like that. Now the text doesn't tell us this at, at this point, but it's likely that the Jews were in great danger. There were powerful people looking to destroy them. And whenever God sees his people in trouble, he responds spectacularly. He brings down 10 plagues on the Egyptians. He parts the Red Seas. He, he shuts the mouths of lions. God acts in impressive and miraculous and powerful ways. Yet in this story, God seems silent. He seems absent. Where are you, God? Don't you see, Esther? Why won't you move? Why won't you act? Now we don't know the answers to those questions, but perhaps we're looking at it all wrong. There are a whole string of events that take place to put Esther on the throne as queen, and later in the story we will see that this will lead to the deliverance of the Jews throughout the entire empire. If this arrogant king hadn't thrown this party, hadn't gotten drunk and commanded Vashti to be paraded before all of these drunken men, Vashti might have remained queen. If Esther and Mordecai had returned to Israel after the Jews were allowed to go back home, Esther might not have become queen. If Esther hadn't been taken when the search was made for all the beautiful women, she might not have become queen. Now I wanna pause for a moment and make one thing very, very clear. This is a horrible thing that has happened to Esther, that has happened to all of these women. I am not telling you that, that, that it wasn't. 
And I don't think the author is trying to downplay what's, what's taken place. This is abuse, it's pure and total evil. Yet God uses this terrible situation and he brings good out of it. And we know that in all things, Paul says, in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Esther comes to the throne for such a time as this and she saves her people from complete and total annihilation. Now there's no mention of God in this story and the author does that intentionally. He uses it as a literary device to grab our attention. He wants to show us something. He wants to show us that God works in ordinary ways throughout ordinary days. Our days are filled with a thousand ordinary moments and it's pretty clear when we see God work in extraordinary ways. When he miraculously heals a loved one, when he protects us during a, during a horrible car wreck, when the cancer diagnosis turns out to be a mistake, when he, when he opens up the perfect job opportunity that we've been waiting for so, for so long, when events like that happen, it, it's striking, it's clear that God is at work. But quite often what we fail to realize, what I fail to realize, is that God is at work in the everyday, ordinary moments of our lives. Esther might have thought that God had forgotten her or, or that he had abandoned her, but God is never, never absent. His silence does not equate his absence. He has not forgotten you, he has not abandoned you, he is working in the shadows even when we don't feel it, even when we don't see it. There's this quote that I love, it's attributed to Charles Spurgeon, but I don't think he's actually the one who said it, but it goes like this. God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken, and when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. You know, for me, I felt like those years in seminary were so ordinary. I couldn't see God at work in my life. In fact, to be honest, I feel like most of my life is pretty ordinary. But there were a thousand ordinary moments where he was at work. What if Sue never guest lectured in that class? I, I wouldn't have taken another class with her for a year, and by then it would have been too late to intern here. What if I never had coffee with her? What if... I thought I should stick with my own plan, which I thought was a pretty good plan. And I knew the best place to intern. What if I never showed up here that night at Bible study? What if there were a thousand ordinary moments? I didn't realize what God was doing or, or how he was at work, and yet he was. All of it seemed so ordinary, so mundane. God is powerfully present even when it appears he's elusively absent. Here's the second observation. Jesus, our true king, is concerned with our inward appearance, not our outward appearance. One of the things that's so interesting in this story is that it doesn't begin with Esther or, or even Mordecai. It begins with the arrogant and selfish King Xerxes and a prideful display of his wealth and power. And again, I think the author is intentional about that. See, King Xerxes was an evil king who valued women based on their physical appearance, based on their ability to, to satisfy him. He used and abused people for his own pleasure. And the world is a lot like Xerxes. The world tells us that, that what matters is how you look on the outside, your physical appearance, the clothing size you wear, where you went to college, what career you're in, how much money you make, or what your resume looks like. What matters is the image that you put forth. 
not your character, not who you're becoming. The world says that unless you look this way or do this thing or make this much money or drive this kind of car, you're not enough. But Jesus is our true king and he is a good, good king. And he doesn't look at your outward appearance. He's after your heart. He's after the core of who you are. He's after what you think, feel, and desire. Jesus cares deeply about who you're becoming. He's not an arrogant king who uses and abuses you. The way of Jesus is the way of love and humility. The way of Jesus is the way of self-giving love. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us are also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handy, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, you and I had nothing to offer. We were dead in our sins. You know what that word dead means in the Greek? It means dead. Like you can't be kinda dead, you can't be partially dead. There's only one kind of dead. That's what we were. And yet, God, because he loves us so much, because he's rich in mercy, gives us his son Jesus, who makes himself nothing. And in Jesus Christ, God becomes man, humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. That's the kind of king I wanna give my life to. That's the kind of king I wanna follow. A king who loves me so much that, that he gives his life so that I might have life. A king who says, come to me with all of your brokenness, all of your weakness, all of your sin, all of your shame, and I will make you new. I will heal your brokenness. I will empower you with my strength. I will forgive your sin. I will take your shame. I will make you the person I've always intended you to be. I will change you from the inside out. The invitation is to be with Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus so that our inner life becomes like his inner life and to carry on his work in the world. The world says, if you do this thing, if, if, if you look like this, then, then finally you'll be enough. Jesus says, if you put your trust in me, I'll be enough for you. Jesus says, you are my masterpiece. You are my handiwork. And I've got good work for you to do. Why would we ever miss that? Why would we ever not want to be part of that? This is where life is discovered, where freedom is found, where, where deep joy and peace is experienced beyond measure. Why would we not want that? Perhaps, perhaps the point of the journey is not so much where you're going, but who you're becoming. When I started out on this journey uh, from the world of corporate finance to the world of ministry, I was so worried about the destination. I wanted to know where I was going, how I would get there, and when that was going to happen. And I would stay up worrying about all of that, worrying about how it would all work, up, work out. But God was so much more concerned about who I was becoming than where I was going. 
And during those years in seminary, I learned to trust and depend on God in a way that I had never experienced before. God was changing me from the inside out. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I think I might be the worst ministry, women's ministry intern of all time. I don't even know how to use a paper cutter. What is this newfangled contraption you speak of that you call a paper cutter? What do you do with this thing? Like, you want me to run a discounted cash flow? You want me to create a strategy plan? You want to talk theology? I'm your girl. You put a paper cutter in front of me? I'm at a complete and total loss. And yet, our women's ministry team was so gracious with me, and I learned so much about what it means to care for and pastor people. To, to humbly depend on the Lord. And God showed me areas, he's still showing me areas of my life where I was trusting in myself and not in him. He placed a burden on my heart to, to, to see racial harmony and racial wholeness become a reality in the church, in our church, because that's a reflection of the kingdom of God. He placed men and women around me who encouraged me and affirmed me in my gifts, particularly in my gift of teaching and preaching. There were no real spectacular moments. There just weren't. There were a whole lot of ordinary moments, and not a single one of those ordinary moments was wasted. God was at work. He's still at work, and his greatest work is the work he's doing in me. God is powerfully present, even when it appears he's elusively absent. Jesus, our true king, is concerned about our inward appearance, not our outward appearance. And so the question for us this morning is this. Are you mistaking God's silence for his absence? Are you experiencing God's powerful presence in the everyday ordinary moments of your life, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't see it? Are you listening to the world and focusing on your outward appearance? How, how, how you look, what where you live, or, or how much money you make? Is that what it's gonna take to make you feel like you're enough? Or are you allowing Jesus, your true king, to make you the person that he's always intended you to be? to change you from the inside out. Perhaps the point of the journey is not so much where you're going, but who you're becoming. And whatever your journey looks like, this is what I know. God is always at work. And his greatest work is the work he's doing in us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are the God who is near, that you do not leave us, you do not abandon us, but you are the God who is with us. And would you help us to be aware of your presence in the everyday, ordinary moments of our lives? Lord, help us to be open to the work that Jesus is doing in our lives. We love you, Lord. We want, our desire is to become more like Jesus, so would you do that in our lives? Would you show us those places and help us to become more like him? We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.